Tonight on 360, a gag order requested in the Trump hush money case. Why New York prosecutors want a judge to impose one on the former president with the trial now just weeks away. Also tonight, new details in the murder of a Georgia nursing student and how her killing is now part of the debate over the border. And later, with Russian forces on the move, a rare look at the Ukrainian drone warriors using sometimes homemade technology to try to slow the Russians down. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Plenty of new developments to bring you tonight in the many trials and growing tribulations of defendant Donald Trump. Today, he and his adult sons appealed New York's massive civil fraud judgment against them. He did not, however, begin paying the $460-plus he now owes, an amount New York Attorney General Letitia James has taken to tweeting out, actually. The figure on the left of her tweet there, the equal sign, of the left of the equal sign, 114-some thousand dollars, that's how much interest piles up every single day on a bill that Trump has now got less than a month to either pay off himself or find someone else to. There's also a new court filing in the classified documents case setting one special counsel against another. But we begin tonight with another case against Trump, the New York hush money trial and District Attorney Alvin Bragg's new request for a gag order on the former president, justified, according to his filing, by threats against him and his staff that went from nearly non-existent before the case to so many that the district attorney's security detail had to bring in help from the New York Police Department because they couldn't keep up. The filing also cited his conduct in other matters, and keeping them honest, they are not hard to find. Deranged Jack Smith. Have you ever heard of him? Deranged Jack Smith. Deranged Jack Smith. The deranged one, I call him. Doesn't he look deranged? You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. I meet a woman outside of Bergdorf Goodman. I took her upstairs to a changing booth. It was all made up. I don't even know who this woman is. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge? I have a Trump-hating judge. This rogue judge. A Trump hater. We have a rogue judge. This judge is a lunatic, and if you've ever watched him, and the attorney general may be worse, may be worse. You ever watch her? I will get Donald Trump. Letitia James, the corrupt attorney general of New York. She's a corrupt person. She's got serious Trump derangement syndrome. Every single day and suing him, I'm going to sue him. Just a small sampling there, some of which, in tone at least, his campaign spokesman adopted in response today, quoting now, Today, the two-tiered system of justice implemented against President Trump is on full display with the request by another deranged Democrat prosecutor seeking a restrictive gag order, which, if granted, would impose an unconstitutional infringement on President Trump's First Amendment rights, including his ability to defend himself and the rights of all Americans to hear from President Trump. CNN's Karen Scannell joins us now, along with CNN legal analyst Karen Friedman-Agnifilo and also Ellie Honig. Uh, Carol, let's start off with you. Let's talk about what this gag order would potentially cover, because Trump could still criticize Alvin Bragg, the district attorney. He can still criticize the district attorney and the case itself. But what Bragg's team is saying to the judge is they would like him to prevent Trump from criticizing any of the potential witnesses in this case, any of the jurors that are selected in this case, as well as the attorneys that are working on it that aren't Bragg and, and the court staff, as well as their family members, you know, saying that they have seen this in other cases and they're trying to get ahead of it He, he went after the assistant to the judge, the clerk of the judge in the other case. Right. And the judge imposing gag order there. So they're now trying to get ahead of it, saying they want to protect this and particularly the jury here, because Trump has had a history in some other cases of going after the jurors, including in Roger Stone's trial. You know, he is a longtime confidant of Trump. He went after them after Roger 
Roger Stone was convicted. So what they write in their filing for protective order for the jury, they say defendant's conduct in this and other matters, including his extensive history of attacking jurors and other proceedings, presents a significant risk of juror harassment and intimidation that warrants reasonable protective measures to ensure the integrity of these proceedings, minimize obstacles to jury selection, and protect juror safety. So they're saying in this case, Donald Trump will learn the identities of the jurors, but they want the judge to stop him from sharing that with any of his supporters, any of his confidants, and they also don't want him to know the addresses of any of these jurors. Uh, and what about the security for Alvin Bragg? What's the latest on that? So to support this, they're saying that the his office had seen a direct correlation from March 2023 when Donald Trump started attacking Bragg and attacking this case. This was at the time when we were reporting every day about the grand jury hearing from witnesses, and it was just before the indictment. So they said in 2022, there was one threat against the office. In 2023, there was 89 threats against the office, including two instances where letters were sent to Bragg, including white powdery substances that were deemed not to be toxic, but included death threats against Alvin Bragg himself. All right, Ellie, what do you think from a legal standpoint about this um, the idea I, of a gag order? I think the requested gag order here is appropriately narrow. Now, I'm no fan of gag orders. I was a prosecutor for 14 years. I never asked for a gag order, but I also never had a client or a defendant quite like Donald Trump. And he has a history, as Kara said. Any judge in deciding whether to issue a, a gag order like this has to weigh the defendant's First Amendment right. You do have a right to criticize prosecutors in the case against you with the need to safeguard the proceedings, especially jurors and witnesses. And that's really the focus of this gag order. So I, so I think it's narrow enough that the judge can sign it without infringing on but the First you, Amendment. Uh, Michael Cohen is going to be one of the witnesses yeah. in this. So he, so Trump's not going to be able to say anything about Michael Cohen? Exactly. I mean, tr Michael Cohen is well known as a witness and Donald Trump and Michael Cohen both talk publicly about each other quite aggressively. If this gag order is signed, then yes, Trump would violate it if he made verbal public attacks on Michael Cohen. Karen, what do you think about it? So I think you bring up an excellent point that it's going to be a concern for the judge that this is all about protecting the jury pool because they're getting ready for trial. They're getting ready to send out jury questionnaires and you need to protect the information that gets to prospective jurors. And so why not have an why not? Why didn't the DA ask for an anonymous jury, that the identity of the jurors wouldn't be known. So the law in New York state is different than the federal law. And it's really, you're not actually allowed to have a completely anonymous jury to the defendant. And uh, so, so this particular request that they made, which is to keep the names and addresses from the public, but not from the defense team or the prosecution team, is actually along with New York law. But, but the, Michael Cohen is, the Michael Cohen issue is a concern because if Michael Cohen continues to speak out about Donald Trump, Donald Trump will say he has a right to respond. So I could see the judge here for example, issuing a gag order on all parties and all witnesses uh, to protect the jury pool from getting extraneous extrajudicial statements and information now that we are weeks away from the trial. And there's certain testimony, certain evidence that they're trying to keep out. That's right. They want to keep out some of the testimony from or some of the public statements that Rudy Giuliani had made. He was on Fox News trying to explain this way back in 2018, 2017. And at the time, he was saying that Trump knew about the payments. Uh, and then tr so Trump's team was saying they don't want that in. Right. So he was implicating Trump in this. And now the, the Trump folks are saying, well, he had nothing to do with this. He was just 
you know, speaking off the cuff. Right. They're saying he wasn't actually retained by Trump. He wasn't acting as his attorney. He just kind of freelanced and went on Fox and was saying this. So they're trying to put that back in the bag or say, if you're going to let it run, let us run the cleanup effort that Trump and Giuliani then engaged in. They also don't want some contemporaneous notes that Alan Weisselberg made. Right. So Weisselberg was part of this hush money payment. Uh, He was involved in conversations with Michael Cohen. He took handwritten notes that the prosecutors want to use. Trump's lawyers are saying they shouldn't be allowed to to use that because Alan Weisselberg is not being called as a witness in this case. He's so not on so either he side. So he can't be questioned by the defense about it. Right. That's right. And also remember, he is in talks to plead guilty to perjury in the New York attorney general's case, which also raises complications about his credibility as a witness. And what about the access Hollywood take tapes and, and his public statements on sexual assault allegations? Yeah, I mean, the question then for the judge is going to be, not just does this show bad character. You can't just introduce evidence that shows that a defendant's a terrible guy and says terrible things. You have to show that it's directly relevant to one of the issues at trial, the person's intent, some sort of pattern. And I think what prosecutors have argued and will argue is this goes to Donald Trump's motive, his intent. Why was he willing to pay off Stormy Daniels, because this tape had just come out and he didn't want to sustain further political damage. That'll be the prosecution. Karen, how long do you think this trial goes on for? It could be. A lot of it depends on how much cross-examination of the witnesses that uh, Donald Trump's lawyers choose to do. But the prosecutors have estimated about four weeks is what they think their entire case will take from start to finish. And depending on the, if the defense attorneys cross-examine their witnesses or put on their own defense case, that could obviously extend it. But I think, I think four to six weeks is a, is a, decent, uh, a decent guess. I, I want to go over to the former president's now appeal in the, the, uh, this 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 other case on on the fraud. Can you walk us through what he did today? Yeah, so he filed a notice of appeal along with his sons. They're appealing both the dollar amount, you know, this massive number of $454 million just for Trump, as well as the other remedies, which includes banning them from being an officer director of a company and also continuing this monitor that's in place. So they filed their notice of appeal to get the ball rolling on this. You know, they still have 30 days to post money in order to satisfy the judgment in the case. Uh, You know, so that's the thing that is still lingering out here. That wasn't addressed today in the appeal. This was just more of them saying, we are going to go forward with this and, you know, we're going to challenge all this, see if the judge had committed any error. And is it clear how or if he can pay? I mean, this is the big question that, you know, it's a private company. There were questions about the credibility of their financial statements, which the judge said were fraudulent and inflated in many ways. I mean, Trump has said that last year in testimony, he had more than $400 million in cash. The attorney general's office said in 2021 $200 million was tied up in an illiquid partnership that he had with another real estate company. So no one really, unless you're there, can really see and have a handle on actually how much cash he has. So he could get a bond and have that collateralized by some of the assets that he owns. Mm. You know, he could sell property. That takes longer to do. But, you know, this is kind of uncharted territory for an individual having to put up so much money because he's not a company that has access to, you know, loans and right. banks and other sources of money. I also want to bring in uh, investigative reporter and Trump biographer, Syracuse University law lecturer, David K. Johnson. So, David, based on what you know, I mean, do you think Trump can pay for this? I mean, you've been saying you think he, he might file for bankruptcy. Um, I think Donald certainly will not have the cash to pay both the state award and the Eugene Carroll award. That's about $530 million. Uh, he may be able to find someone, it won't be a, a bank, I suspect, to, uh, in effect, guarantee the payments. 
But, you know, given how murky his finances are, given his long history of not being truthful about his finances and having hidden debts, it would be a strange bird who would do that. And by the way, if Trump becomes president, that means he's going to be owing somebody over $500 million. And he began his campaign almost nine years ago saying, I don't owe any money. You have to owe, be obligated to anybody. I'm not going to take contributions. Elliot, what do you think the odds are that Trump wins this appeal? I think they're low. Uh, it's important to understand you're not going to win an appeal by arguing to a court of appeals, well, the judge should have credited our witnesses. The judge should have believed our evidence more than the other side. That, that's not an appeal issue. You have to show something structural or procedural. It's also, frankly, not an appeal issue, in my view, to say, well, the attorney general had political motivation. She ran for office based on a promise that she'll go after me, which she did. But that's an issue of judgment and ethics and mixing prosecution and politics. That's not going to win you an appeal. Is the attorney general doing herself any favors by tweeting out things mocking Trump's, the interest he has to pay? I mean, isn't that sort of is that appropriate? No, I think it's inappropriate. I think it's a terrible look. And, and you showed this before. What the attorney general has been doing the last several days is every day tweeting out plus 114,000 whatever dollars in interest. She's mocking him. Let's be honest. She's rubbing it in his face. She's gloating. It's not a good look when Donald Trump's argument to the public and to his voters is she targeted me politically. Now, we know she ran for office. She said it dozens of times during her, her campaign for AG. Vote for me. I'll go after Trump. That's bad enough. Now she's piling on and, and sort of reveling in it. And I, I, if I was advising her, I would tell her to knock it off. And Karen, what happens if Trump doesn't pay? So after 30 days from when the judgment is entered by the court. Uh, and it's already been entered. It's so already the clock been is entered. Ticking. Yeah, that clock is ticking. After 30 days, if he hasn't either paid the judgment or posted a bond uh, in the amount with collateral that satisfies the bond, the attorney general can start enforcing the judgment, which means she can go after his bank accounts. She can go after his airplane, his buildings, his property. It's it'll be interesting to see how she chooses to enforce the bond. But also you've got Barbara Jones, who is embedded in the Trump organization at the direction of Judge Angoron. And she's the former federal judge who is the monitor there. So she has a window into the financial of the Trump organization. And that could also be oh, an interesting way that uh, that the attorney general will be able to enforce the judgment. And, and Gary, do we know, I mean, does he have to pay the $83 million to Eugene Carroll? Anytime. Is there a clock on that? Yeah, the clock has been ticking on that. I think it's about halfway through the 30-day clock in federal court. But just hours after the judgment came down in the New York civil fraud case, Trump's lawyers went to the judge overseeing the Carroll case and said, hey, can we postpone complying with this until all of our post-trial motions are dealt with? The judge has set a very quick briefing schedule and wants to hear from everyone by the end of the week. David, how do you think the Eugene Carroll judgment will play out? Well, Donald is going to do everything he can to delay past November 5th. That's 100% of his ballgame in these two cases. If he can find some judge who will stay uh, seizing of his properties and will stay requiring him to put up money, he's going to run there. He's entitled in, in the state case to appeal to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. The highest court in New York is discretion as to whether they take the case or not. And like Ellie. I don't see any substantial grounds here for him to overturn the findings of fact, and I don't see any significant errors by the Judge Ngoran. Mm. David K. Johnson, thank you. Kara Scannell, Karen Friedman-McNifflo, and Ellie Honig as well. Coming up next, what 
Investigators are learning about a nursing student's killing at the University of Georgia and what politicians, including the former president, are making the fact that her alleged killer was in the country unlawfully. And later, how a magician unwittingly became part of a campaign dirty trick against Joe Biden through the dubious magic of AI. We'll explain ahead. This show is supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd go hiking or take a much needed nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? BetterHelp wants you to know that now's the time to choose happiness. And working with a therapist can help you get closer to a more blissful you. Therapists are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions. And they teach productive coping skills, giving you a greater sense of confidence to face your stress and anxiety. With BetterHelp, you get the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people and counting with licensed therapists, all 100% online. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com AC360 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot AC360. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-hosts cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Georgia officials today released grim new details in the killing of nursing student Lakin Hope Riley on the University of Georgia campus last Thursday. As if the initial facts were not horrifying enough or the sense of loss not deep enough by now, and all of it has now been compounded by the revelation the suspect was in this country unlawfully and how quickly that fact became politicized. More from CNN's Ryan Young. Arrest records alleging her suspected killer, Jose Antonio Ibarra, prevented Riley from calling 911 and mutilated her body by disfiguring her skull, then dragged her to a secluded area to hide her body. Autopsy results determined the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head. The 26-year-old suspect lives in an apartment complex, only steps from the campus trail Riley had been jogging on Thursday morning. We have a suspect in custody for Lakeland's murder. Ibarra was arrested on Friday, the day after Riley was killed, Investigators have not released a motive. Lakin's death is a direct result of failed policies on the federal level and an unwillingness by this White House to secure the southern border. Over the weekend, Republican Georgia Governor Brian Kemp sent a letter to the White House criticizing the administration's immigration policies and demanding information on Ibarra. It is an understatement to say that this is a major crisis. And because of the White House's failures, every state, as I've said repeatedly, is now a border state. And Lake and Riley's murder is just the latest proof of that. Immigration and Customs Enforcement says Ibarra was arrested in 2022 for being in the United States unlawfully. He was paroled. And Ibarra was arrested again in New York City in 2023, charged with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17 and a motor vehicle license violation. According to ICE, NYPD released Ibarra before a detainer could be issued. Former President Donald Trump joined the chorus plane aimed at the Biden administration, hyperbolizing the current border crisis 
as Biden's border invasion on Truth Social, saying Riley's murder should have never happened. Ibarra was denied bond and is being held in the Athens Clark County Jail. Not one more dog. Tonight, Riley's sorority holding a vigil to remember the 22-year-old. It is so obvious to me why it feels so dark right now, and that is because we lost one of the brightest lights that there's ever been. A shaken community gathering to grieve the loss of one of its own on the first full day of classes since the murder. Our hearts will always ache without Lakin, who was such an integral part of our sisterhood. This has got to be, I mean, the, the impact of this on campus, it's, it's just, it's horrific. Yeah, when you think about the size of this campus, there's over 40,000 students. We talked to so many today who were scared, Anderson. A, a lot of them left on Friday, and this was their first day returning. And as far as the eye could see, you saw thousands and thousands of students lining up to pay their respects, holding hands. Also talking about the little things like telling your friends you love them or calling home to your parents. Also, they want more security on this campus. There's been a lot of talk about how fast this investigation happened, but there's also been talk of bringing back the blue lights that we all know that used to be across campuses all across this country. Those were moved about 20 years ago from this campus, but the conversation's really extending. We saw so much pain here. People saying they're scared to walk by themselves. Now groups are going out together, but you can understand this is gonna be something that they're gonna remember for the rest of their lives. There's no murders been on this campus for over 20 years. Anderson, this yeah. has been heartbreaking to watch throughout the day as these kids are just struggling. Ryan Young, thank you so much. Sir, perspective now, joining us tonight, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Um, Andrew, the, the suspect's immigration status, what impact would it have on the investigation? On the investigation, likely not much, right? What we have here, uh, Anderson, is just an uh, irredeemably awful act of violent crime. And so to the investigators who were able to uh, identify this individual as a suspect in this crime with the assistance, incredible assistance of video surveillance, and then to collect physical evidence likely that ties him to the crime scene itself, um, to them where he comes from or what passport he holds or doesn't hold, uh, is not particularly relevant. It's his involvement in the violent crime and how they can prove that with physical evidence that matters to them. As Ryan Young reported, the suspect has been arrested before. Given his immigration status, is it surprising he was released in those other cases? I don't think so. You know, we don't have perfect detail about what happened in the New York case in which he was uh, accused, at least, or convicted of of, of endangering a child. Uh, but it is not uncommon in this country for people who are here, uh, either on lawful immigration status or unlawful immigration status, to be treated the same way that uh, that Americans, people who are lawfully here, are treated. And that is when they are arrested for nonviolent acts, if they don't have a uh, an extensive record of criminal convictions, they typically are not held in jail pending a resolution of those charges. And so it doesn't surprise me that that happened to him here. You know, people will will rightfully ask, well, how is it that someone who's uh, unlawfully in this country is given bail? The fact is it happens around the country, you know, uh, dozens and probably hundreds of times a day. Um, and that's just simply a, a reflection of the volume of people that are going through the criminal justice system and the inability to keep all those people uh, prior to trial. And, and if somebody commits a, uh, a a serious crime and they're here unlawfully, do they generally, if they're convicted uh, and it's a crime that 
people would actually be in prison for. That, do they do time and then a, when that time is up, they get deported or does, is that not automatic? They do generally. That that's certainly the position at the federal law enforcement level, right? If you're arrested for a crime, you are going to go through the system and serve your time. If you're convicted and sentenced, you're going to serve that sentence before you're turned over to the immigration service to be deported to your home country. Uh, most states pursue that same sort of prioritization. So, uh, if you know, obviously, like in this this uh, awful case, he's now been arrested and detained for murder. He's not ever going to get bonded out on that charge. So he's going to have to see this one through, serve his sentence here before he's deported back to Venezuela. And right now, do you imagine investigators still looking for more evidence at this point? I mean, it's still pretty early on. There's no doubt they are. You know, that's going to happen until they are they are convinced that they have completely coursed that scene for everything they possibly can. I'm sure they've already uh, or will soon execute a search warrant at his at his residence to try to collect any other evidence that could possibly tie him to this crime to see if he's maybe taken anything from the crime scene, brought it back to his residence, anything like that would be very powerful evidence against him. Um, and that's the way that they're going to look at this. It's really on the political side that the uh, that the defendants or the accused immigration status is, is becoming relevant. And it's not particularly... Uh, helpful on the criminal investigative and prosecutorial side. Andrew McCabe, appreciate it. Coming up, President Biden meets with Republican and Democratic leaders at the White House tomorrow. Ukraine aid is a major topic. Look at how the fight is getting more difficult for Ukraine, even for what's been called its secret weapon against Russian forces. That's next. Some breaking news tonight on the war in Gaza. Hopeful words from President Biden on talks to establish a new ceasefire in exchange for hostages now held by Hamas. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. We're not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Also tonight, the New York Times is reporting that Israeli negotiators are signaling their willingness to release a group of jailed Palestinians in exchange for some of the Israelis held hostage in Gaza. Now, this comes as President Biden hosts congressional leaders from both parties to the White House tomorrow in an effort to break through the deadlock in a number of key funding battles on the agenda, money for Israel, but also tens of billions of dollars for Ukraine. Russia is slowly reclaiming territory in the east. President Zelensky told CNN that, quote, millions in Ukraine could die without more funding. We'll have more on that interview in a moment. Right now, Nick Payton Walsh is on the ground in Ukraine with how the fight has changed. They flit around fast, hiding each week in a new abandoned shell. Drone operators have been Ukraine's secret weapon for months, but now it is getting harder. We saw this unit in December, but their base back then has been bombed. Yet still, they hunt every day for a single mistake, a Russian who gets himself spotted. They say the Russians are better at hiding themselves, although sometimes obviously not. Yeah, so they've just spotted a Russian soldier carrying groceries and a dog came out to greet him. So I think it's quite possible that's where some Russians are hiding. So it begins. The first strike on the window. One drone watching, the other flies into the target. And quickly they prepare another. The hunt is no game but has the tools of one. 
They lose about a quarter of their drones to Russian jamming. They see the Russians running into the blue house. Its roof clearly hit before a while ago. It becomes their next target. They go in again. It could be a mortar position, they think. Watch how smaller explosions send fragments flying out. The Russians often have to stay injured inside the damaged building to not draw in more drones. They go in again. It could be a mortar position, they think. Then suddenly, the power goes out. The internet down and screens black, but remarkably, they barely miss a beat. The commander sparks up his cell phone 5G with the drone feed and a chat group directing the entire attack just from an iPhone. The smoke grows in intensity. They think they might have hit a weapons store. They never see Russian faces or taste the smoke. The blast noise takes a few seconds to travel to them. But this is still killing, up close, yet far away. Strike, launch, repeat, all day. Sometimes it's cheers here, screams there. Other times, the other way around. Now, Anderson, what really is striking about these units is just how relentless those attacks are. They simply do that all day, every day, whenever they spot a potential Russian target. Interesting, too, though, this unit based in Kherson, a city that was invaded, occupied, liberated. Well, they are concerned of what they've seen 20 kilometers further away from their position. Russian units are massing. They're concerned they might be trying to have another go at the city. All along the front lines now, Anderson, real concerns amongst you. Ukrainian soldiers that Russia might be trying to regain some momentum. We saw some of that uh, just outside Avdivka, which Ukraine had to give up two Saturdays ago. Russia moving towards a small village, Latochkina essentially taking it, Ukraine withdrawing from that. Another sign of Moscow's momentum. And uh, that is leaving many Ukrainians deeply anxious. Their President Volodymyr Zelensky admitting today that of the million shells the European Union promised, remember it's Europe that's going to have to step into the gap left by a lack of uh, America assistance of that million shells only 30 percent have arrived so far mm. shocking frankly and they're feeling it on the front lines anderson yeah nick payton walsh thank you be careful incredible to see the work of those drone operators up close to that point president zelensky spoke with seen as caitlin collins the interview airs tonight at the source at the top of the hour here's some of their conversations specifically about american aid now being held up in congress by house republicans you're basically saying that there will be no new success for Ukraine if there's no new U.S. aid. Essentially, this all depends on U.S. aid. Steps, success forward will depend on USA. Yes. Not defending line, not only defending line. Because if you defend, just defend, you give possibility to Russia, push you. Yes, small steps back. But any, anyway, you, we will have these steps back.
small one. But when you stand back, you lose people. We will lose people. People will die. Again, you can see more in the next hour on The Source, 9 Eastern Time, right here on CNN. Just ahead for us tonight, we now know who was behind the deepfake robocall of President Biden during the New Hampshire primary and how easy it was to actually do. A magician tells his secrets next. answer to a month-old political mystery, who was behind a deepfake robocall to New Hampshire voters days before the presidential primary that sounded like President Biden telling some to stay home and not vote? It's a strange answer involving a New Orleans street magician. Kyung La has details. Paul Carpenter, New Orleans street magician, wanted to be famous for fork bending. They could actually see it looks like it's bending. But instead, he's making national headlines, tricked himself, he says, in a political scandal around this fake robocall of President Biden. What a bunch of malarkey. Sent to more than 20,000 New Hampshire residents urging Democrats to not vote in last month's primary. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. Did you know when you made that recording how it was going to be used? None, none whatsoever. I'm a magician and a hypnotist. I'm not, I'm not in the political realm. So I, I just got thrown into this thing. Carpenter says he was playing around with AI apps, getting paid a few hundred bucks here and there to make fake recordings. One of those paying, according to text messages shared with CNN, was political operative Steve Kramer, then employed by Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips. And I was like, no problem. Send me a script. I send you a recording. Send me some money. Boom, boom. How easy is all of this? for a self-taught guy. Five minutes, 10 tops. Five. Kramer admitted to CNN he was behind the robocall. The Phillips campaign cut ties with him, saying they had nothing to do with it. But this deep fake raised immediate concern over the power of AI from the White House. That call was indeed a fake and not recorded by the president. To election watchers. When people are getting phone calls 48 hours, 24 hours before an election, there is nobody there to interfere. And those I, were very worrisome to me. And when you think about you know, how much we are connected to our devices, and now you're going to inject these generative AI into that ecosystem, and I think we're in for something dramatic. Can you create a voice that sounds like President Biden? Very easily. Deepfake expert Vijay Balasubramanian says there's no shortage of often free apps that can do it. It requires just three seconds of your audio, and you can actually clone someone's voice. We are testing to see how quickly you can create an AI voice. And then upload that. And add voice. And then I can just type whatever I want. I would like to buy a new pair of shoes, but they should be pink. And then say generate. And in just seconds, I would like to buy a new pair of shoes, but they should be pink. For someone like me, you know, it did sound a little bit like you. A famous voice? Like five minutes of President Biden speaking at any particular event, and that's what it took to create a clone of his voice. Pindrop, his company, not only detected that robocall of President Biden's voice was a fake, but tracked it to the very AI company that made it. So it takes AI software to detect whether a voice is AI generated. It knows that it's a deep fake. You cannot expect a human to do this. You need technology to be able to fight technology. So you need good AI to fight bad AI. To alert Americans that...
just like a magic trick. An AI deep fake is not what it seems. You can actually make it look like it's twisting off. Senior investigator correspondent Kyung Lang joins us now. And if anything, are Kim's doing to try to guard against this? Well, here's one window into some of the interest in this space, Anderson. Pindrop, the company you just heard of uh, in that story, says that they are getting a lot of interest from political campaigns right now and that in the coming months they expect to have some announcements in this space. So this is just one company, and we have a long way to go before the end of 2024 and November. And part of the reason why there's so much interest here is because all of us, we have human ears that naturally compensate and fills in the blanks. Our brains want to believe what we see in here, Anderson. Kimla, thanks so much. Coming up next, the Supreme Court hearing arguments today in two cases that could change what you see on social media. I'll talk it over with CNN contributor Kara Swisher. battle at the Supreme Court today. Justices appeared divided as they heard arguments in two cases that could change what you find on social media and other websites. Texas and Florida want to stop YouTube and TikTok, Instagram, Facebook and others from being able to remove content that expresses certain viewpoints. The legislation in both states was in response to accusations from former President Trump and others who said the platforms are hindering conservative perspectives. But tech companies say they have the right to set rules and argue without the power to dump posts or users It'll give airtime to misinformation or a hate speech. Joining us to talk about it, senior contributor, tech journalist, and podcaster Kara Swisher, whose fascinating new memoir, Burn Book, A Tech Love Story, goes on sale tomorrow. Congratulations on the Thank book. You. Um, Thank you. A couple, a lot of things I want to ask you about. First of all, the Supreme Court hearing today yes, about sir. how, um, whether tech giants should be treated like, like phone companies. How do you see this? Well, I, I, I'm not usually on tech side, but in this case, it's ridiculous that the government's trying to impose what they should and shouldn't say. The, these tech companies have First Amendment rights. They're also not the public square. And they're trying to put, they're trying to use the word censorship to get everyone upset because it gets people in this country all rattled, if you use that word. But these are private companies. They can do what they want. But the First Amendment applies to, to governments, That's not necessarily correct. private if, companies. If they actually read the First Amendment, the Attorney General of Texas, for example, it actually says government shall make no law, not, not Google or not Facebook or anything else. You, I mean, in the book, you, your, your trajectory is fascinating. I mean, you were a young journalist, young reporter, mm -hmm. and kind of the only one around who was really interested. Yeah. In, in digital yeah. stuff from the beginning. Yeah, I was the young one, like give it to the young one. That's that really, it was exactly like that. And I was interested. I was interested in phones. I was very interested in, I covered retail. And I and when I saw Craigslist, I worried about the death of newspapers right away. You could mm. see all those economic underpinnings were going and they didn't see it. And I was like, don't you see what's happening kind of thing? And you, you, it's also fascinating because I mean, you write about all of the, the, the giants in tech who we know about from the various earliest times you met them to, to right. now and the trajectories. I just want to ask you about a couple. Sure. Elon Musk. I met him when he was at a company called Zip2, which was basically Yellow Pages Online. And mm. it, he kind of got tossed out of there. He made a few million, but not a, not a great history. He was very typical of a lot of those people. And then he moved on to something called X.com, which was a, a competitor to PayPal. They merged and luckily sold off to eBay. And then that's where he made his money. You, in the book, you're writing about him now as sort of all his worst impulses or what we see now. That's correct. He had 10% of it was, uh, I don't know if I can say penis jokes, but it was penis jokes and boob jokes and, and memes and things like that. And then, and that was 10% of his personality. And then he was super interesting and he was covering like cars and solar and 
a space, that was substantive. Everyone else was making a digital dry cleaning service. He wasn't. Mm. And that was that's what attracted me to him. They were big ideas. And I like that. And now what do you think of him? I think he's still doing big ideas, but something's happened to his personality, something drastic and disturbing. He's been he's been radicalized in some way. You write about Jeff Bezos also, who you've known from, from, from the beginning. What do you make of his trajectory? I think, I don't know if it was in the book or in an interview I read that you said that he would eat your face off if he needed to. I called yeah. him feral. When I met him for the first time, he was older than the ones I was, people are covering, you know, were very young at, at the time I met them. Jeff was, he was already successful. He had worked on Wall Street. He was an adult. He had a wife. He was, you know, later he had children pretty early. And so he has a very different character. He was into logistics and math. And so he was doing a logistics company is what he was doing. It didn't matter they were selling books. And so he it was a different, he's a different cat, you know what I mean? He's a different person. And so I just thought he was wildly ambitious in a way that was more common to me, more like the Bill Gates kind of character. Mm -hmm. In the book you write about January 6th, you say, on January 6th, 2021, the scenario that I had concocted, with, with, which Twitter executives in 2019 told me was preposterous and irresponsible to write, became a, a reality. Yeah. Walk us through that. So I wrote a column in the New York Times. I had a column in the New York Times for a while because I really wanted to show, I wanted to cause alarm. And I knew the New York Times would be the place they would pay attention to it. And so one of the columns I wrote was in 2019, where I said, if Donald Trump loses the election, it's not unusual to think he's going to say it's a fraud. And when he says it's a fraud, it's going to it's going, to pump, it was going to, it's going to go up and down the online food chain that exists on the right, which is very vast and, and it goes back and forth. So he's going to say it's a lie. He's going to say it's a lie. He's going to say it's a lie. He's going to repeat it like propaganda. And then he's going to ask his people to do something about it in the real world. And it's going to jump from online to, uh, to offline. Mm. And I was like, and he's going to ask them to stop the results. And I said that. And when I wrote that, I, I was... Called, I was called out by tech companies. They're like, this is preposterous, ridiculous. We're not responsible. I said, I didn't say you were fully responsible. I said, this could happen. And in, it did. There is an arrogance in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. about, from a lot of these, these founders, these titans who are, I mean, they're doing extraordinary things. But, but there is this, I mean, am I wrong in feeling this No, arrogance? it's just like, you, you never have a Wall Street person telling you they're going to build community. They're here to take your money. They're here to like insurance. They're very clear on Wall Street. They're very about clear money. about money. And, and the first line of this book is, it was capitalism after all. I just don't want to hear this nonsense about changing the world when they control the world. Mark Zuckerberg was asked at a congressional hearing on social so. media. I, I want to play that, that moment because sure. it's very dramatic. Sure. I, I, I'm sorry. You point out repeatedly there's been no regulation no. of these social media companies. No, no, I mean, there's, no, no none Is there any other industry that no. that has happened? No, to? it's none specifically, and Section 230 protects them actually from liability. There's hardly any liability. They are born, you know, they can't murder people, but neither can the rest of us, right? Or maybe they can. I don't know. In that case, those parents thought that Facebook and others had a had a had a thing in it. Listen the to what in, he said. Yeah. What happened to their children? Right. Listen to what he said. Did he say, I'm sorry for what I've done? Or did he say, I'm sorry for what's happened to you? Mm. There's a very big difference. He still can't take even the smallest amount of responsibility. What do you think, how should they be responsible? Whether it's for that Liability. issue or just... Those parents should be able to sue. They'll lose or win in court. That's fine. That seems fair for everybody else. Even Donald Trump's in court. When you look at this next election coming up, are we going to see all the same issues we saw in 2020? Some of them. And then there's going to be more deep fakes. Or, you know, we'll have to figure it out and work through. But my issue is 
These are unaccountable people making decisions for the rest of us and not paying the price of damage. Uh, Kara Swisher, thank you so much. Thank you.